how do i start like hi everyone hi everyone hi everyone welcome back to the minute women podcast my name is grace and i say i'm linnea and i'm linnea and i'm linnea i literally was every like, time what do i say i dragged my ass out of bed for this picture <laughs> on mondays it's gonna be margarita mondays <laughs> nationwide <laughs> and feel that reciprocated enjoyment, enjoyment. Oh, oh my god it's like we're friends or something hi everyone welcome back to the minute women podcast my name is grace and i'm linnea and it's our two-year anniversary it is so exciting it's a birthday it's a birthday <laughs> it is and we're here in grace's kitchen grace's kitchen which i it's nice. I it's a nice like it. kitchen. It's a nice apartment. I like recording from home. Yeah. I don't know if you liked recording at your house, no, I, but I do. Yeah, yeah. It it's makes really nice. me feel like I'm a, a celebrity doing a cooking show in their own like kitchen. Oh yeah, yeah. We should like set up a camera, right? Like someday. welcome to my home. <laughs> welcome to my oh, kitchen. You're here. <laughs> yeah. We have big news though because of the birthday. Because yeah, of yeah. the anniversary, we're doing a giveaway, our first ever giveaway. The first ever Minute Women giveaway. Because we've, you know, we've just noticed that none of y'all are buying our merch. So we're like, maybe if we give it away, yeah, so we bought some for it. you. <laughs> we bought some for you. Um, yeah, we have a little prize pack all set up from our Minute Women merch store on Tee Public. And we are really excited to give that away to a lucky winner. Yeah, so it's now officially launched yeah. so you can go over to the instagram page which is where you can learn all the details about how you can be eligible for the giveaway we're gonna take care of like shipping and everything like that so just take a peek at what those requirements are and then we will announce the winner next wednesday so we have one week yeah. to to get involved to, to like be a part of the magic yeah to win the prize pack to win the prize pack. You can see all the fun little pictures over on Instagram. It's yeah. like got a tote bag and a mug some and some stickers. stickers. Yeah. So you can be the number one Minute Women fan. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Other than maybe our parents. Who, if they win this giveaway, that's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say like straight up. If, if I draw my parents' name, we're redrawing. I'm, redrawing. <laughs> I'm putting it back. Yeah. They're welcome to enter, though. Thank you for entering. <laughs> Please enter. <laughs> And also because Historica Canada knows that it was our two-year anniversary because they, they just know. They, they know. put out a new Heritage Minute. They did. Almost like it was made for us, even though they don't like to recognize that they know about us. So the Chloe Cooley Heritage Minute came out for Black History Month. Right. And so I haven't watched it. Oh, um, really? No, I haven't watched it because I thought that it would be fun to watch it like for this episode. Oh, yeah. So let's do it. I'm going to do a little watch. All right. Here we go. That man has a full head of hair. <laughs> that is a wig. That is definitely a wig. This Heritage Minute is full of male wigs. Oh, 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 Chloe. <laughs> why th Why are they tying her up? Gotta sell her down the river. Oh, literally. Oh, yeah. She's in a boat. She's in a boat. Oh, his wig is so bad. <laughs> That's the real tragedy. After 200 years, slavery was abolished in 1984. And racism is still going strong. And racism died that day. <laughs> Canada ended racism. Oh, dear. Yeah. So that Heritage Minute is great because it reminds me a lot of the old Heritage Minutes. Yeah. In the sense that it's not great. It's not great. <laughs> um, not that the story is not meaningful or that like the actors do a bad job. Yeah. It's, it's just like 
after seeing the Elsie McGill one and the insulin, yeah. diabetes, heritage, it's like you could just feel like those are so high production mm-hmm. compared to that one. And that one, it just, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's the pandemic and they couldn't get, you know, the resources they needed or whatever. It just seems like it's in a field and a yeah. house. In the woods. In the woods. The set design isn't great. The wigs are very obvious. It's bad costuming. It's not I would great say. costuming. It's not great costuming, which is disappointing. A because it's a heritage minute, and like you said, the last couple new ones have been really good, and even some of the ones from the early two thousands were pretty good as well. Pretty yeah. good production quality. Yeah. Um, but it's also just like this is such an important minute. It came out during African Heritage Month, and it should have been one that like more effort was put into. Yeah, and. I will say that I I love it for for it's oh, yeah. for it's not being great. I think that's what makes them really charming and nostalgic. It's true, but it is interesting to see that one compared to some of the more yeah. recent ones. Even where, the Oscar yeah. Peterson one that came out, that was so well done. That was beautiful, yeah. and this one is very monologuing, talking yeah. to myself to explain the exposition. Then I'm having one conversation with Peter Martin about how I hate being a slave and he's working, uh, he's like a free man now. And then my evil owner ties me up and throws me in a boat. Like, sends me down the river. Sends me down the river to sell in New York. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. So it, it, it is just, it's interesting. I don't know, like... It would be interesting to see what crews were working on the previous yeah. ones compared to this one. Maybe you have a very new director, new crew. Maybe. Maybe that's totally what they were going for. Maybe they were like, we want to make a Heritage Minute that feels like a 90s That's nostalgic. Um, and it, it is nostalgic for sure. So it definitely stood out at, out of the new ones for me. So this one was directed by Allison Duke. To me, it's so inspired by the old heritage minutes that it's yeah. hard not to think that was the influence. Yeah. We should email her and yeah. ask her what her influences were behind like her choices and stuff. Our good friend yeah. Hunter from the North Normal podcast yeah. was just telling us how all you've got to do is email the people that you want to talk to about history of any kind because the worst they're going to do is not answer you. Absolutely, yeah. Especially Canadian film industry. Apparently, they're very yeah. willing to just talk about their production. They're like, Yes. I'm yeah. here, please. Yeah. So yeah, when I say it's bad, I don't mean it's bad. It's just no. like very nostalgic. It is. Relative sure. to some of the newer ones. Yeah. And did you know the story? Did you know the story of Chloe Cooley before not. this heritage movie? I had no idea. I think they frame it in sort of an interesting way because we have briefly talked about Chloe Cooley in our Richard Pierpoint episode. Okay. Because he is part of the group that kind of supports the act to limit slavery in Upper Canada, mm-hmm. which is the legislation that results from this incident being reported to officials. But it's also not that clear cut and an event in a series of events that set a legal precedent for ending slavery in Canada. Right. So we're going to talk about today Chloe Cooley, and, okay. but also sort of the legal history leading up to that point. Mm-hmm. Because one thing to keep in mind is that this is before Confederation. Right. And where were they? So they're in like the Niagara region okay. of of Upper Canada. So Ontario today. Mm-hmm. And so any law that would pass in Upper Canada doesn't by default impact the other right. colonies in Canada. Right. They each have their own legal precedents. Yeah. So to say that this is the legislation that 
ended slavery in Canada only really applies if you consider Canada to be the Canada's like lower and upper Canada. And it may just be upper Canada. I don't know if this would have applied to lower Canada. Okay. So it's not that it's insignificant. It's just more complicated than the Chloe Cooley incident ended slavery in Canada. Right. It's not as cut and dry. Yeah, exactly. So Chloe Cooley was a black woman enslaved in the Niagara region of Upper Canada during the late 18th century. As is the case with many formerly enslaved people, we know very little about Chloe's life outside of the remarkable events that are depicted in the Heritage Minute Mm -hmm. with Sergeant Adam Vrooman, who would have been her slave owner, enslaver. Mm -hmm. And that leads ultimately to the act to limit slavery in Upper Canada in 1793. But outside of this kind of like singular event, which actually is never really told in her own words from my understanding. Okay. We don't know very much about Chloe. Okay. But yes, there is slavery in Canada. Yeah. As we have alluded to a couple of times. And I kind of thought we had gone into this in more depth, but we've never really done a history of slavery in Canada. No, we've just suggested that anybody who doesn't think that there was slavery in Canada is wrong. Is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And that would have applied to black people and indigenous people. However, today we're going to focus mostly on the enslavement of black people in Canada. Mm -hmm. So in early Canada, the enslavement of African peoples was a legal instrument that helped fuel colonial economic enterprise. The buying, selling, and enslavement of black people was practiced by European traders and colonists in New France as early as the 1600s and lasted until it was abolished throughout British North America in 1834. During that two-century period, settlers in what would eventually become Canada were involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Canada is further linked to the institution of enslavement through its history of international trade. So products such as salted cod and timber were exchanged for slave-produced goods, such as rum, molasses, tobacco, and sugar from slave-holding colonies in the Caribbean. Mm. Because that's the other thing. People are like, well, you know, there isn't plantation slavery in Canada. And it's like, yeah, but you're also buying all of the sugar that fuels plantation slavery in the South. Yeah. Slave owning was widespread in both colonial French and English Canada. This is true across all regions of Canada as well, from east to west. Individuals from all levels of societies owned slaves, not just the political and social elite. People who enslaved black persons included government and military officials, disbanded soldiers, loyalists, merchants, fur traders, tavern and hotel keepers, millers, tradesmen, bishops, priests, and nuns. So everybody. So everybody who was anybody could own a slave. Everyone. (laughs) While slave ownership filled a need for cheap labor, it was also considered a part of an individual's personal wealth. The Mm -hmm. law enforced and maintained enslavement through legal contracts that detailed transactions of the buying, selling, or hiring out of enslaved people, as well as the terms of wills in which slaved people were passed on to others. If your slave, if your owner dies, you can be bequeathed to someone. Just like a turtle. (laughs) A turtle? Turtles, they have a crazy (laughs) long lifespan. And so if you buy a turtle, you have to have, like you have to put them in your will. It's like one of the requirements because you can't even really buy turtles in Canada anymore. What? And so if you have a turtle, you have to put it in a will because they'll outlive you because turtles live to be like 140. That's wild. Yeah. Does that apply to tortoises too? Yeah. Man, that's so funny. So if you own one, you have to will it. <laughs> Turtle law. Yeah. 
Yeah. Why do you know that? I had a friend in university who really wanted a turtle, and it's like a very like lengthy, yeah. Like, Imagine process. if you are that age, and like I don't know about you, <laughs> I don't have a will. Yeah. No. But you buy a turtle, and so the only thing in your will is it's the, the turtle. turtle. Yeah. The only plans that you've laid out are <laughs> who should receive this turtle who gets, when you die. Who gets Franklin? Who gets Franklin? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, basically slavery is on the level of turtle ownership. Yeah. Which honestly, not that far off. No. Like they're treating you like an animal. Yes. They probably treat their turtles better. They probably treat the turtles better. French and English colonies depended on slave labor for economic growth. The intention of enslaving black people was to exploit their labor. Colonists wanted free labor to increase their personal wealth and in turn enhance local and colonial economies. In Canada, the majority of enslaved people worked as domestic servants in households, cooking and cleaning, and taking care of their owners' children. Many were employed in the business of their owners, including, for example, running inns, taverns, mills, and butcher shops. Enslaved black people cleared land, chopped wood, built log homes, made furniture in the colonies. As agricultural workers, they prepared fields, planted and harvested crops and tended livestock. Also, many worked as hunters, voyageurs, sailors, miners, laundresses, printing press operators, fishermen, dock workers, seamstresses, hairdressers, and even executioners. And wet nurses, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Taking care of their children uh, yeah. applies to that. Nursing them. Yeah. I did a, I guess a project on wet nursing when I was in the ninth grade. The ninth grade? Yeah. For, for a black heritage month for like african heritage that's heavy well it wasn't because i didn't really delve that far into it i was just like did you know that they made them feed their babies (laughs) that's wild like that's crazy back to you karen in the newsroom yeah (laughs) it's such a whitewashing of how we envision colonial canada because every canadian historical work like imagining like the imagery of it it's like white settlers tending their fields. Yeah. It's not black people tending the fields of, of the, the white, white settlers. People. Yeah. And you really do have to imagine black people working in every facet of society. That's yeah. how prevalent slavery is, yeah. especially in Canada. Like it's yeah. not just in the US. Yeah, the executioner bit is interesting because it is interesting. At the Fortress of Lewisburg, the executioner was a former slave from the caribbean who was tried and convicted of murder obviously we do not know the legitimacy of those claims but they said that either we will kill you or you and your family can move to lewisburg and you will have a salary you will be a free man but you will work as the executioner and he like took it and so he came to Lewisburg and was notorious as like one of the few black men free black men in the community that's crazy and he's the executioner in the town what if he went rogue or and I mean (laughs) fairly like rightfully so like (laughs) yeah and also just nothing in your life has prepared you to be an executioner no they're like hey he murdered one guy what if we got him to murder all the guys <laughs> yeah. for us on our dime? Yeah. <laughs> and it's just that's the level of nuance people put into it. It's like yeah. black people are great at killing. <sighs> Let's give them this job. Yeah. And also, we don't want to psychologically damage any of the white people. Let's psychologically damage the black guy. Sounds like a great plan, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. So slave labor was used to make a range of products as well. So 
we think slave products as molasses, sugar, tobacco, rum, but it also applies to, you know, soap, potash, bricks, candles. Like if, you know, it's not mass industrial complex, but if you own a slave and they're working in your shop, you know, the rope that your shop produces is a slave product. And then they also work in skilled trades as well. So like blacksmithing, carpentry, cobbling, etc. Yeah, that's in so in Shelburne, which has a a large um, African Canadian African Nova Scotian population, mm-hmm. um, with the Black Loyalists um, being being settled in Shelburne. There's a large barrel making industry oh, okay. and display that was that was the coopering coopering yeah and so there's coopers in and uh on the waterfront and across from that is like the the barrel making factory which oh, is cool. like kind of a museum now yeah the woman who when i lived in shelburne who ran it was a fifth four, fourth i think fourth generation um African Nova Scotian in Shelburne. Oh wow! And uh, she's recently passed away, but oh. uh, she worked in the yeah. She made she made barrels. She was a cooper. That's cool. Yeah. Is Cooper a common last name in Shelburne by any chance? It, I mean, it is a last name around there. I'd say yeah. it's more common, and it might just be like migration. But I'd say it's more common the closer you get to like Chester. Oh okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, because there's a lot of a lot of last names, especially last yeah. names for African Nova Scotians and African Canadians. Your last name would just be your slaver's last name, and so yeah. a lot of people ditch that the minute that they're a free person. Yeah, and so yeah, a lot of people do the thing that people have done throughout history, which is like I'm gonna take the last name of what my job is. Hence, you have like the last name Smith and Taylor and Baker and Baker. Yeah, exactly. Swinehammer. Is what Swinomer comes from, and that's the pig killer. We have discussed this Butchers. in the past, yeah. yeah. <laughs> pig killer, <laughs> Linnea pig killer. What job do you think uh, the McNutts had? Ba-dum. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing good. <laughs> We'd be lucky to be working. <laughs> Actually, I do know our last name. It's a Scottish clan name oh. or a Scottish name, but it would initially have been like McKnight. But oh. if you say McKnight in a Scottish accent. You get something closer to McNutt or McNaught. And so a lot of immigrants from Scotland who come to the New World, they're like telling people like, yeah, this is our last name. And they're writing it down. They're like, McNutt, got it. So you're a knight in shining armor. In another life. Yeah. I would be Grace McKnight, which is such a cool last name compared to Grace (laughs) McNutt. The evolution of names. Yeah. (laughs) There's a persistent myth that slaves in Canada received better treatment than slaves elsewhere in North America, especially the United States, but there's very little quality evidence to suggest that. As chattel, they had no basic freedoms or rights, and whether they were treated humanely or cruelly entirely depended on who their slave master was, not anything within the Canadian system that would protect slaves. Right. For instance, some slave owners allowed enslaved Africans to learn how to read and write, while others would deny slave children any access to education. So it purely depends on who your slave owner is. And a lot of the time, if they're letting you learn how to read and write, it's for their own benefit. It's like, I want you to keep my books. I want you to do this, blah, blah, blah. And you need to know how to read and write to do that. Yeah. A number of enslaved black people were freed upon their owner's death and others were rewarded for their years of service with inheritance of land, money, and household properties. But then again, other slaves would be passed on to family members or friends upon their owner's deaths. Many enslaved black people were subject to cruel and harsh treatment by their owners. 
Some black enslaved people were tortured and jailed as punishment. Others were hanged or murdered. Enslaved black women were often sexually abused by their masters, and families were regularly separated when some family members were sold to new owners. These are all parts of the slave experience, and they happen no matter what country that you were enslaved in. There is also a long history of slave resistance in Canada. This resistance was informal as well as legal and organized. The abolitionist movement in Britain had argued against the transatlantic slave trade since the 1770s. Abolitionism soon made its way to British North America, where a number of legal challenges were made against the institution of slavery. By the early 1800s, Lower Canada, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia had attempted to abolish slavery but failed. Bills were introduced in Lower Canada in 1793 and in 1801, but neither bill was passed. In contrast, bills to legalize enslavement were presented in New Brunswick in 1801 and Nova Scotia in 1808, but they were met with opposition and were not passed. Meanwhile, enslaved individuals launched legal challenges during the 18th century that destabilized the institution of enslavement in Quebec and the Maritimes. So part of it is the fact that throughout Canadian colonies, we have British common law and British common law is precedent law. So you can set precedents that essentially make slavery illegal without it being illegal. Right. And so we'll kind of get into some examples of that. So between 1791 and 1808, enslavement was challenged by Nova Scotia's Chief Justice Thomas Strange and his successor Samson Blowers. When slave owners came before Strange and Blowers seeking to reclaim enslaved people who had fled their bond, the judges would put the burden of proof on slave owners, asking them to prove ownership of enslaved person to prove that they had the legal right to purchase that person. Owners who appeared before these judges were usually unable to satisfy the court in that regard. Among other factors, the strong opposition of the courts, along with the slave owner's inability to protect existing slavery laws, made enslavement in Nova Scotia economically unviable, and as a result, slavery gradually died out. Okay. So you don't have this, like, big moment where slavery is banned. Right. But you do have quite early on between 1790s and the early 1800s a series of cases that demonstrate that it's not an enslaved person's or black person's. It's not their burden to prove that they are free. Right. It is the slave owner's burden to prove that they own them. Right. And if you do not have the legal documentation to prove it, which a lot of people didn't, yeah. you do not own that person. It's, and that made it basically unviable. Yeah. It's kind of like how it's the opposite of like the decriminalization process. Yeah. Kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when you start make, like marijuana, like things started being decriminalized until it became legal. And it's like mm-hmm. things are starting to become like for slavery a little bit more rigid to make it more difficult to own slaves. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a really good analogy for it. A precedent-setting case came before the courts in Lower Canada in February 1798. An enslaved woman named Charlotte was arrested in Montreal after leaving her mistress and refusing to return to her. She was brought before Chief Justice James Monk, who released her based on a technicality. 
British law stated that enslaved persons could only be detained in houses of correction, not in common jails. Since no houses of correction existed in Montreal, Monk decided that Charlotte could not be detained. The following month, another enslaved woman named Jude was freed by Monk on the same grounds. Monk asserted in his ruling that he would apply that interpretation to the law in all future cases. Okay. So he's a good guy. Yeah, I mean, that or he's just very technical. Yeah. He's like, well, it says common jails. It says it right here. We have no corrections facilities here. Therefore, it's like, I hate to do it. I hate to do it to I you. I hate but to do this. I hate to do it. You're but free. You're free. <laughs> get out of here. I'm not happy about it, but get out of here. Trust me, I don't want to do it, but I will apply it to all future cases. I don't know why he's Southern. All, all old former lawyers and chief justices are from, like, Virginia. <laughs> Especially regarding the slave trade. Especially when regarding the slave trade <laughs> in North America. In 1800, an enslaved black woman named Nancy sought her freedom in New Brunswick courts on a writ of habeas corpus, a law wherein an individual can report unlawful detention or imprisonment. During the hearing, the court decision was a tie, so Nancy remained in the service of her master, Caleb Jones. The writ was not issued until 14 years after Nancy had attempted to emancipate herself and her young son by escaping enslavement. However, such cases placed limitations on enslavement, making the practice unsupportable. The Supreme Court's anti-slavery position helped to decrease the value of slave property due to the uncertain future of enslavement. So there is like an economic factor in slavery where... It's kind of like people say buying a house is the best investment because a house is not really going to lose value over right. time. It should only grow unless a bubble pops and the whole economy of Halifax is screwed. But anyways, in this case, slaves for a long time had been perceived as a safe economic investment because they should retain their value. Right. But because these laws are coming into place and people are trying to get their freedom as slavery, and it seems like the courts are increasingly siding with them. Yeah. Slave owners do not want to retain slaves because it's not seen as liquid capital anymore. They're not going to get their return on investment by purchasing a slave anymore. Okay. So for gross, scummy economic reasons, yeah. slavery kind of dies out in a lot of Canadian colonies. That's anticlimactic. Yeah, hence you yeah. don't make a heritage minute about that. Yeah. You make a heritage minute about Chloe Cooley, which is this right. very brave act and a lot more emboldening and, and impassionate yeah. than, well, it just wasn't economically viable for a lot of people, so it just stopped. So get out of my house. Yeah, like there isn't any morality. It's purely economically driven yeah. in a lot of places. People would not purchase slaves without solid proof of ownership. Slave owners knew they could not count on courts to recognize an owner's right quote unquote, to hold slaves or to help maintain the practice of enslavement in any related legal issues arose. So enslaved people increasingly refused to be held in bondage and knowing they had the backing of the courts, many chose to self-emancipate. Consequently, many slave owners suffered financial losses. Good. Good. <laughs> In Prince Edward Island in 1802, the lawyer for a captured runaway named Sam demanded that the owner, Thomas Wright, provide proof of ownership. However, Wright had all of his paperwork in order and was able to reclaim Sam. So it, it does say that, like, this isn't a guarantee. Yeah. It is better to have 
legislation in place that ends slavery, of course, because there are instances where people do have all of their shit together and they can be like, yeah, no, I do own this person. And they're like, damn it. Yeah. In 1825, the 1781 Act regulating enslavement in that colony was reversed without debate, seemingly affirming that enslavement was then illegal in Prince Edward Island. Good. Finally. So Chloe's incident is part of a long series of events that collectively brought about the end of slavery in Canada. It's not good to look at this event as the thing that ends slavery in Canada. Not to say it's not important. It's very important. And it's probably the most well-known event in that series of events. But it's important to keep in mind that this is part of a really long process that takes place over several decades in Canada. Yeah. Chloe was first enslaved by Benjamin Hardison of Birdie, a farmer, miller, and member of the Legislative Assembly. She was likely forcibly relocated to Birdie Township at the end of the American Revolution. But again, we don't know that much about Chloe. Sometime before 1793, Hardison sold Chloe to United Empire Loyalist Sergeant Adam Vrooman, a resident of Queenston, Upper Canada. Like many black women enslaved in colonial Canada, Chloe would have worked as a domestic servant in both Hardison and Vrooman's households. Her forced labor at the Vrooman residence in Queenston, the West Landing, would have included taking care of the first five Vrooman children of Vrooman and his wife, Margaret de Peister Matis Vrooman. Chloe would have also completed a range of household chores, such as cooking, washing laundry, making soap, candles and preserves, churning butter, and harvesting crops and tending to farm animals for the kitchen. Nice. That's a a wide range of activities. Vrooman enslaved at least one other person, a black man named Tom. Tom was in Vrooman's possession in 1783, and Vrooman sold Tom to Adam Chrysler in 1792, seven months before the Chloe incident. What is known today about Chloe Cooley is because of the documentation of her violent sale by Vrooman across the Niagara River into New York on the 14th of March, 1793. This incident was reported to the Executive Council of the Parliament of Upper Canada in Newark, which is now Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. On that fateful day, Vrooman violently tied Chloe up with a rope. Vrooman was assisted by two other men, his brother Isaac and one of the five sons of McGregory Van Every. McGregory Van Every. Yes. That's a name. That's a racist name. Yep. (laughs) That's three last names. McGregory Van, Van Every. Yeah. With like pref- prefixes on the names. Yeah. Man- I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> the three men put Chloe in a boat and transported her across the Niagara River to sell her into New York State. Chloe resisted fiercely, but to no avail. Her piercing screams were heard by Peter Martin, a black loyalist formerly enslaved by John Butler, to what was transpiring. So that's the other man in the Heritage Minute that she talks to. Right. Um, and he goes on to know Richard Pierpoint. Oh, that's And so cool. that was our point of connection in the past yeah. episode. So Peter witnesses Chloe's struggle and heard her screams. He, along with another witness, William Grizzly, a white man who worked as a laborer for Vrooman and was a resident uh, nearby, reported the incident to Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe and other members of the Executive Council. Grizzly was able to provide a detailed account of the events as he was on the boat that transported Chloe but did not assist in restraining her. So he was like, I was there, but I didn't help. 
I, I was part of the bad thing. I didn't thing, do it. <laughs> but I feel like it's a bad thing. I was bad thing adjacent. Yeah. But I didn't do the bad thing. Or a good thing. So I'm okay, right? I'm fine. <laughs> this was not the first time Chloe had resisted her bondage and the authority of her enslaver. According to Vrooman, she regularly protested her enslavement by behaving in an unruly manner, stealing property entrusted to her on his behalf, refusing to work and engaging in truancy, leaving her enslaver's property without permission for short periods of time and then returning. So Vrooman's like, she's a really bad slave. She's a badass. <laughs> Everyone's like, she honestly was the worst. <laughs> Therefore, I can do whatever I want. And so I tied her up and sent her across the river. So yeah, I can I can violently tie her up and sell her in New York State. That's fine, right? Right? It's cool. She it's really, chill. She really pissed me off. Have you seen my wig? It's new. It's do new. you like it? Does it smell good? It doesn't. I no. know it doesn't. Absolutely. <laughs> At the time of the Chloe Cooley incident, whispers of abolition and freedom had circulated in the Niagara area among white settlers, enslavers, and enslaved black people. These rumors pushed Vrooman and other colonists who held property in slaves to liquidate their chattel property rather than suffer the financial loss. So he's like, abolition might be coming. Mm -hmm. I need to sell Chloe before I can't sell her anymore. Right. So William Grisley further testified that he saw another black person bound in the same manner as Chloe and also mentioned the fact that other enslavers plan to sell their slaves to the United States as well. So okay. it's kind of going around in the Niagara region that everyone needs to dump their slaves yeah. Yeah. and like sell them in New York before it's illegal to do that anymore. Ugh. Lieutenant Governor John Graves Simcoe and Attorney John White wanted to put an end to the violent removal of enslaved people outside the province and used the Chloe Cooley incident to introduce a law to abolish slavery in Upper Canada. Simcoe had begun planning to introduce legislation prior to that day. Mm -hmm. Within a few weeks, the Attorney General filed charges against Vrooman for disturbing the peace in the Court of Quarter Sessions held at Newark. On the 18th of April, 1793, Vrooman responded to the charges in a petition in which he stated the following. He had been informed that an information had been lodged against him to the attorney general relative to his proceedings in his sale of said Negro woman. Your petitioner had received no information concerning the freedom of slaves in this province, except a report which prevailed among themselves. And he has transgressed against the laws of this country by disposing of property, which, disposing. which from the legality of the purchases from Benjamin Hardison, he naturally supposed to be his own. It was done without knowledge of any law being forced to the contrary. So basically, he's just like, I didn't know. I don't know anything. I just wanted to sell her. It was nothing to do with laws that were coming down the pike. Yeah, yeah. I just, it's just like a transaction. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did I do something wrong? This petition confirms that a charge called an information was filed against Vrooman as the executive council had recommended. Additionally, Vrooman identified from whom he purchased Chloe, which gives credence to the legality of the buying and selling of slaves in Upper Canada. Lastly, Vrooman's petition reveals that he provided a defense of ignorance to the sale of Chloe, stating he did not break the law. According to Vrooman, he was well within his legal rights, as Chloe was his property. The charges against Vrooman were dropped, and Chloe and other enslaved black persons in the province were considered chattel and did not have any rights to defend themselves in court. So basically, Vrooman's successful in saying, you yeah. can't arrest me because that's legal, and it is legal. Yeah. 
But two months later, Simcoe and White introduced legislation to abolish slavery. Good. So basically, it's like, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. In the sense that... This guy being a dick. Yeah. Made it like, okay, we have to put some very direct rules into place. Yeah, exactly. Because he's right. Technically, he's not doing anything against the law. So if you do truly believe that this is not a good thing, you need to introduce legislation to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. On the 19th of June, 1793, Attorney General John White proposed an abolition bill to the House of Assembly. The bill received opposition because from between 1792 and 1816, several colonial officials and politicians enslaved black people in the province. The provincial secretary, William Jarvis, enslaved six people. From the first Parliament of Upper Canada through the sixth Parliament of Upper Canada, three members of the Executive Council, ten members of the Legislative Council, and twenty members of the Legislative Assembly held property in slaves. Three politicians came from direct ancestors, fathers or grandfathers, who enslaved black people in Upper Canada. So it's also not the easiest bill to pass in the world because the people who need to pass it own slaves. Yeah. And come from a long line of it, it sounds like. Yeah. The result of Simcoe and White's abolition bill was compromise, and the bill was amended. Following the revision, the Legislative Assembly passed an act to prevent the further introduction of slaves and to limit the term of contracts for servitude, also known as the Act to Limit Slavery in Upper Canada. Uh-huh. Simcoe gave the bill royal assent on the 9th of July, 1793. The act did not free any enslaved person in the province. At the outset, it confirmed and validated the institution of slavery. The act prohibited the importation of enslaved persons to Upper Canada, but did not outlaw the sale of slaves within the province or across the border into the United States. So you just can't import slaves. You can sell slaves to your neighbors and you you can can sell your slaves. Yeah, you can export, but you cannot import slaves. They're trying. They're getting closer. It also laid out the foundation for gradual abolition, ending slavery after 25 years. So essentially, it's giving slave owners 25 years to get rid of their slaves and not lose the money. That's really, really You're protecting the slave owners, not the slaves in this. The new law stipulated responsibilities for enslavers upon manumission, so the freedom of enslavement, and encouraged former enslavers to employ their former slaves as indentured servants, which a lot of people have said is worse than slavery sometimes. I need to look into it a bit more. What does indentured mean? I'd have to go back and jog my memory because there's a really interesting, like, study within history that's basically looks at how the indentured servitude of white europeans in england simply Mm -hmm. because that's who was there there wasn't a lot of black people in england during and this is like mayflower so like 14 1500s lays the legal precedent for the transatlantic slave trade and it's it's really it's really interesting but i'd have to like go back and jog my memory about it sure Little is known about Chloe's early life or where she went after March 1793. Still, her plight is a testament to the struggle of enslaved black persons in Canada and the Atlantic world and the various ways in which they resisted their servitude. Although a black woman without any citizenship status or rights, Chloe left an indelible mark on Canadian history. She was one of over 200 black women enslaved in Upper Canada, one of few that is known, Chloe's struggle against her enslavement and imminent sale garnered attention that contributed to the passage of the Act to Limit Slavery. 
The act was the first piece of legislation in the British colonies to restrict the slave trade, and it changed the trajectory of life for generations of people of African descent that followed. And that's the story of Chloe that's Cooley. That's the story of Chloe Cooley. I don't know. It's, it's definitely like a good heritage minute, and I appreciate yeah. wanting to contribute more to the story of African definitely. heritage, especially shining a light on slavery in general. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like slavery does, does exist. I find legal history very difficult to demonstrate in 60 second snapshots, though, because especially British law, it's all case law and precedent. So there's just so many nuances to that story. And when you look closely at it, like if you read out those details, you'd be like, oh, this didn't end slavery. But at the same time, it's like that is how slavery actually ends Mm -hmm. in a lot of places. It doesn't happen with... We're passing this one massive bill. Right. We're, we're passing the 13th Amendment. Yeah. And that just makes slavery illegal. Like, that doesn't happen in most places. No. The and United States instance is very different than other places. And I was also going to say, though, the 13th Amendment didn't really end slavery. No. And as a black and white kind of way that I think a lot of Americans would like to believe it did. No, the prison you, industrial complex is yeah, a slave market. You like, don't you don't just snap your fingers and like slavery is is gone, abolished. No, it's like but you don't just like end racism or like sign yeah. an amendment. Yeah, anyway. It's really easy to whitewash Canadian history yeah. in a lot of ways and we now live in an era of settler colonial history which obviously very important and not detracting from it at all but it does change the nature of discussing history to being a lot more indigenous and white relations yes and it makes it easy i think to overlook the fact that we contributed to the transatlantic slave trade in a major way even if not by owning slaves but by purchasing slave contributing goods. to it yeah yeah you make it economically viable by yeah. buying all of those products so and that's a problem so basically cut out sugar yeah cut out rum <laughs> molasses and it's funny because so many of those are atlantic products like yeah you think about rum and molasses especially oh those yeah. are so integrated into nova scotian culture dark anyways. and stormies are a caribbean drink oh yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. you go to the caribbean and they and like dark and stormies that's where they originated and then you know canadians brought that back like yeah either brought that back or people from the caribbean were here and like brought that culture back it's a huge like sailing culture kind of thing so coastal yeah. communities um and like port cities molasses is huge here. molasses is huge M- molasses i don't know this is my fun fact about molasses from yeah. working at the purchase of Lewisburg. Okay. But molasses used to be used as packing peanuts. I did know that. Yeah, so you'd like fill a barrel yeah, with molasses. Yeah, you have definitely told me that. Yeah. Which is disgusting, but clever. But very smart. Yeah. And like for those people, obviously, molasses is like the lowest grade sugar. It's yeah. like the byproduct of making rum, basically. So people want white yeah. refined sugar and they don't really want molasses. Yeah. But you can sell molasses and when to you like say that, people. We're not talking cartons of molasses in a box. No. Like they literally just dumped vats of molasses and then put the products in the molasses to keep yeah. it, which is gross but yeah it's like i don't know how to like safely ship you know porcelain yeah so let's fill a barrel with molasses molasses and it like the velocity of it viscosity of it yeah viscosity of it will not protect molasses doesn't have (laughs) the philosophy philosophy, (laughs) the velocity the viscosity of molasses um do you know the ingredient 
molasses in molasses if you look at a carton of molasses fancy molasses yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which that was the actual question i remember being like 11 years old and being like moments of molasses and she's like i don't know i was like what's in the fancy molasses she's like look look at the carton and the ingredient is fancy, fancy molasses, molasses which like, is really oh, funny that's helpful yeah. <laughs> because it isn't like it's not like apples where no it's a product it's a manufactured product yeah it just is but it just molasses. yeah it just is okay. Yeah, just don't don't ask us any more questions. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, the dark history of molasses, yeah. unfortunately, and Chloe Cooley, and Chloe Cooley, which yeah. is like, yeah, I think like this is a really prime example of why I really like the structure of our podcast because the Chloe Cooley incident is important, but it's important you don't understand really why it's important without looking at the entire yeah pie. This yeah. is just like a tiny sliver of a story that had been unfolding for decades across Canada. Mm-hmm. A country that didn't exist yet. Yeah. So it's happening in these unique pockets across what will eventually become Canada. Yeah. And no. it's, it's like, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's all really the Heritage Minutes have more of a story than can fit into a minute, but a yeah. lot more are a lot more cut and dry. Yeah. 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 There's some that we haven't di- dove into yet that yeah, I think Yeah, but like Marconi, well. pretty cut and dry. <laughs> I mean... The deeper story is that he was a fascist. Yeah, that he was a fascist. <laughs> Not but that he didn't invent like what yeah, he invented. Yeah, <laughs> or or like what's another one? I was just thinking of that's very like the invention of insulin. Yeah, invention of insulin. Or discovery, I super, guess. Yeah, super cut and dry. Like didn't have it. Kids were sick. Got it. Kids woke up happy. Like, yeah, yeah. There's not basketball. Pretty straightforward. Pretty but like straightforward. Irish orphans, like, yeah, way more complicated than what they're presenting. Way more complex. <laughs> Johnny McDonald, complex. A complicated man. Complicated. <laughs> a, a troubled man. I'm a troubled man. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us for another episode. And like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we are doing a two-year birthday anniversary giveaway. So go to our Instagram at Minute Women Podcast, and you can find the post where we lay out all of the details for how you can enter the Minute Women giveaway. There's a tote bag. I really like the tote bag. I do too. When I was ordering, I was like, man, do I need a tote bag? <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. You do. Uh, you do. Everybody needs a we tote bag. We want you. <laughs> To order a tote bag. Yeah. And as always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify now. So uh, so all of you should be able to go rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah. And you can join us next week for another episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.